0: Most flutes involve a single cylinder that you blow across or into with holes that you cover or uncover to raise or lower the instrument's pitch. A pan flute is pretty different from that though, in effect binding together a bunch of flutes and letting you play them all at once. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me as I answer questions about pan flute, sea flute, recorder, piccolo, shakuhachi, and many, many more. This is an entirely listener-supported show, which means that every scent that I make off of Strong Songs comes directly from you, the people for whom I make it. If you get something out of this show, if you're glad it exists, I hope you'll consider going to patreon.com slash strong songs and becoming a patron. On this episode, it's time to dig up my dusty reading glasses and rummage through the mailbag because I've got a whole bunch of your listener questions to answer and only about an hour to do it. We've got pop counterpoint, indie cross rhythms, and some Peter Gabriel. So let's get out our letter opener, stack up some envelopes, and get into it. I'm so excited to answer your questions on this, the first mailbag episode of Strong Songs Season 5. As always, before we get into it, if you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on the show, send it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. No guarantees that I'll answer it. I get too many questions to fit into Q&As at this point, but uh, I thank everybody who's ever sent in a question because, man, there are a lot of great musical questions out there as it turns out. So that's listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. I am looking forward to hearing your musical questions. Speaking of musical questions, let's get into it. Our first question comes from Charlotte, who writes, There's a song called You've Got Your Troubles by The Fortunes. I see
1: that worried look upon your face You've got your troubles, I've got my hand.
0: Charlotte continues, it's a fairly classic 60s kind of tune, the horns, the harmonies, etc., but it's elevated by something at about the 2 minute and 30 second mark. It's a vocal part, but not just a harmony part, it seems to go in a completely different direction from the rest of the song, and it just doesn't seem to fit. But it draws you in. It's like salt on something sweet. It shouldn't work. But somehow it does. Is there a name for this sort of interlude and why does it work so well musically? Well, let's listen to what Charlotte is asking about. Here is the section in question.
1: And but I ain't got I no pity you. for
0: you. That's very cool. That is indeed an unusual technique for the time. And as Charlotte says, it's not a harmony vocal part, and it does indeed go in a completely different direction from the rest of the song. I would call that a counter melody in that it's a second new melody that's been written to fit in and around the existing melody, fleshing out and expanding the song as it currently exists.
1: And, so forgive me and if, I if I to I you, my friend, but I ain't got no pity for you well, You've I hate you, your You see, I, I lost my...
0: It's the sort of thing that you'll hear more often in instrumental music, chamber music, where counter melodies are a part of counterpoint, a style of writing with interlocking melodies. A fugue is one of the most famous examples of counterpoint uh, in composition. That's where an ensemble will play a collection of independent melodies that wind and twist around one another, as opposed to a single melody harmonized across several voices. For a classic version of that, here is a Bach fugue recorded by the Emerson String Quartet. It starts with one part. And then, a second part joins, playing a different melody that still works with what the first part is playing. By the time the third part comes in, they're all playing different melodies, but the melodies have been composed to work together. And soon the full quartet is in with each musician playing their own individual part that still work as part of a greater whole. So on this Fortunes tune, they're doing a simplified version of that same thing. Most of the time, they're all singing the same melody together, just singing different notes so that they outline the harmony of the song.
1: She's found somebody else to take your place You've got your troubles, I've got mine
0: It's really just a lead part in a higher harmony She's found somebody else to take your place And then there's just a harmony part that's a third higher, kind of outlining the harmony. In this case, it's in A major so it's going from an A major chord up to a two major to a B major which gives it that nice, bright two major sound that I have talked about many a time on this podcast
1: Found somebody else to take your place You've got your troubles I've
0: got my so we hear that harmonized melody a million times in this recording it repeats over and over and over it's the main refrain so you really get it in your ear and then suddenly near the end of the song they add this new counter melody that really sticks out'
1: no pity for you You've but got I your
0: It sticks out for a couple of different reasons. It sounds like an overdub, and it really sticks out in the mix, particularly in stereo. I'm guessing it sticks out as much as it does, because it was initially designed to stand out in mono. It's also just a much busier melody than the main melody, and it's much more vertical and rhythmically complex. And if I seem to you, my friend, that I ain't got no pity for you, well, that ain't true. You see, I lost my, lost
1: my, lost my
0: little girl. (laughs) Like that's a difficult line That's a singer's line It's got a lot of chromaticism It moves through the harmony in a really hip way Especially on that two chord Then I ain't got no pity for you To that F natural on that four minor chord Well that ain't true Resolving to the E major You see I lost my Jumps the octave up to a high F sharp I mean this is really hip stuff It's a great line
1: and so forgive me and If I say if to I you my friend That I ain't got life. no pity for you For I your true. trouble
0: You see I lost my,
1: my last month
0: so as you could hopefully hear that time after I laid it out and explained some of the harmony, that counter melody fits exactly with the harmony of the song it's really tightly written it's just a second melody it moves through the chords in a different way but it moves through them very precisely and that's what makes it a counter melody it sticks out because it's designed to stick out but in the end he's singing all the right notes in all the right places, so it winds up just bringing out this light, bright new quality to the song rather than changing it. I actually really like how you describe it Charlotte as salts on something sweet that's just it it's a new sensation on top of a familiar taste that brings out what worked about the flavor to begin with I've got my- Scott writes, what makes the song T-I-B-W-F by the Budos band sound so dark and funky? This question might be too open-ended, Scott allows, but this song just oozes funk. So what is it? that is a very funky recording, and that is indeed a very open-ended question. I'll actually just give a quick answer, because it's such an open-ended question, it could go a million different directions. Basically, what I think makes this recording sound so funky is the way it was mixed, the equipment they used, and the way it was performed. So, it's pretty much everything. This sounds to me like a band that really knows how to play together, it sounds like they were recorded all at the same time and all in the same room, and it was mixed and produced by someone who had a strong sense of the kind of recording they wanted to make and the kind of vibe they wanted to get. It sounds like a record from the 1970s, so either it was recorded on analog hardware from the 70s or on modern hardware that's emulating hardware from the 70s. It's got that thick, tape-saturated sound. The bass has that muted, thumpy tone. The organ is really hot and direct. The guitar has that really vibey, vintage reverb. I mean, if you sit down and you listen to the meters, you can hear this same kind of sound. If you listen to Booker T or the Dap Kings, Sharon Jones's band, The Budos Band actually puts out Records on Daptone Records, so they're definitely in that lineage as well. They're also channeling some Afrobeat and Afrofunk sounds, Ethiopian funk artists like Iolu, Mesafin. There's a whole lineage of great funk out of Ethiopia, and that's another influence on this band. They know exactly what they're going for, and they nailed it because they used good reference recordings and they went for that sound. Really, though, more than the gear or the way that it was recorded, this just comes down to confidence to me. Like, the groove on this is so confident. The way that it's played is so confident. This band knows exactly what they want to sound like. Each player knows exactly how they want to play, and that plays the biggest role of all. These players just know how they want to sound. They know how they want the groove to feel, and you can feel that confidence in every... Every measure of this recording. Ralph Eric writes, Hi Kirk, on my way home from an amazing solo piano concert by the Norwegian pianist Ketil Bjornstad, I listened again to his 2004 record Seafarer's Song, which is a concept album on the murderous border politics of the EU in the Mediterranean. Track three, Dying to Get to Europe, has my favorite guitar solo ever by A. Vind Arset. But from a theoretical point of view, I always wondered why it is good at all. Maybe you like the album, and maybe you have an answer. Well, it's always hard to come up with an answer for why something is good, but I think this is a remarkable guitar solo, so let's listen to it. So Ralph Eric, you ask whether this solo is good from a theoretical point of view, but that's tough and not quite the angle that I would take, especially with a solo like this, because Arset isn't really going for something harmonically complex, he's actually doing the opposite. He's basically just in the key of E, and he's going for a more timbral, impressionistic solo that's all about energy and power and emotion rather than how it's moving through the chord progression. I've talked about this kind of solo in the past as a kite and anchor solo where the rhythm section is an anchor and the soloist is a kite flying free and playing a lot more loosely. That came up when I talked about the guitar solo on Rush's Tom Sawyer. This solo is very different from that one in a lot of ways, but it's similar in that one way. It's the same principle. The rhythm section here is playing right down the middle and the guitar is like disintegrating in front of our eyes. It's amazing, he's building these walls of sound and then destroying them, and given the anguish and tragedy underlying the song and the thematic material that it's written about, it's a perfect juxtaposition between that steady groove and those fuzzy, destructive swells of guitar sound. So yes, I think this is a remarkable solo, but not for any theoretical or harmonic reason, more for a conceptual one. It's a beautiful and sincerely felt performance, and one that I'd never heard before. So thanks for hipping me to this record. John writes with two questions that are related to one another, and they're both pretty fun. The first one, John writes, I dreamt a song recently, or at least a melody with backing and harmonies, including a chord progression. At least to me, it was a great song. When I woke up, I could hear it relatively clearly, and I tried humming it and recording that on my phone. But the humming couldn't do it justice to the fuller, richer sounds in my dream. A couple of hours later, I couldn't hear it in my head at all, which was disappointing. Do you have any advice on better capturing dream songs? Or do I simply need to improve my skills to be able to quickly play multiple parts from memory?" So I have a couple of different pieces of advice for this. I've had this happen to me before, and a more common thing that'll happen to me is I'll just hear a song while I'm walking down the street. I'll have a really good idea for a song, and I don't have any instruments nearby, and I need to kind of quickly document them so that I don't lose the idea. So for starters, you have a voice memo recorder on your phone, or you almost certainly do if you're using a smartphone. That's a very useful tool here. So I'm assuming that's what you're recording with. That's what everyone's recording with. I do remember a time before Everyone had one of those when you had to like call your voicemail and leave yourself a message with a song on it. And you'd hear about singer songwriters whose voicemail box was totally full of their own voicemails that they left themselves with song ideas. So it's nice that we don't have to do that anymore. So use that recorder. My biggest piece of advice is to leave the thing recording for longer than you might think you need to. That could be hard in the middle of the night. I would imagine you kind of want to go back to sleep. But if you're trying to document a song idea that you've had, just kind of let the tape roll I'll definitely find when I go back and listen to my song ideas that on the longer recordings it's more likely that I repeat ideas or I sing things in a slightly different way and as a result of that I'll be more likely to jog my own memory when I go back and listen to it later, especially if I was, say, asleep when I recorded it or half asleep and I don't remember it quite so well. Another piece of advice that I'll give kind of sounds counterintuitive, but it's don't just sing notes and expect that you'll hear those notes and have a memory spark. Try to give as much information in the note that you're leaving to yourself as possible. That's like non musical information. If you can say, this is kind of a ballad, it's got a big drum drum beat. Boom, boom boom, kah, boom, boom, boom. Just kind of saying that, singing it, describing it that way, lots of reverb on the drums. And there are going to be strings playing this, this chord progression that moves down. Ba, da, 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 da. And if you kind of sing that and also describe it a little bit, it can be easier for your future self to fill in the blanks and sort of remember the full picture of the recording instead of just the melody or just the bass notes that you're Able to sing in the moment. Another piece of advice I will give is to have an instrument nearby if at all possible. You'll kind of find that the more you do this, the more you allow these melodies to come into your head, whether you're asleep or awake, and then sit down and actually try to pull them out of the air and put them on paper, the more it'll keep happening to you. And so you want to kind of build uh, an environment around yourself that makes it easier to really quickly sit down and find an instrument and really nail down whatever it is that you're singing. I have pianos and guitars all over the place in my house. And there's always one near enough by that if I have a melody in my head, I can grab a guitar and just really quickly figure out what it is I'm playing, what kind of chord I'm hearing. And then that information, you know, getting it on a guitar, seeing, oh, okay. So this is E major, C sharp diminished, D major, you know, and then saying that into the recording, into the note that I'm leaving to myself. Again, that's that extra information that can can make it a lot easier to recreate the song later. The last piece of advice I'll give is not to be too hard on yourself about an inability to remember a song, especially if it's a song that you dreamed, if only because it's okay for music to come and go. It's okay for music, a melody, a song idea to be ephemeral. That's kind of the beauty of music is that it is ephemeral. It's just something that you hear. It's something that passes between two people or sometimes just something that passes in and out of one person's head. We only started recording music a hundred or so years ago, so if a song does wind up eluding you, that's okay. Music can be elusive. That's one of the things that makes it so special. So John's second question is in the same ballpark as his first one. He writes, hearing music in my dreams makes me think about the source and inspiration of music in general. Some musicians that I love, like John Fruscianti, explicitly say that the music they write comes from elsewhere, e.g. the universe, God, etc. They don't view themselves as creating it, but rather receiving it. I love the humility of this mindset and I think there's something to it Although, of course, there's a place for practice, hard work, talent, etc. I'd love to hear your views on this and what others might have said. So this is something that I've talked about in the past on the show, and it's one of the most fascinating things about writing music. There's this feeling that almost anyone who's ever written music has probably felt, or at least is familiar with, and it's the feeling that you're not writing music, you're discovering it. It's this beautiful, often spiritual thing. I'll hear a little melody, the first part of a phrase, and I'll sit down and I'll play it on the piano, I'll leave it unresolved and incomplete, and I'll just pose it to the universe like a question, and I've learned to trust that the second part of that phrase will sometimes just present itself almost out of thin air without requiring any active action on my part. I just have to be open to the idea coming to me. So when the juices are really flowing, it can feel more like excavating a song rather than building it. Like I saw this one little idea, the little tip of this ancient buried skeleton, it was just barely visible above the ground, but that's all I needed to get started, and an hour or so later, there's heaps of dirt everywhere and I've unearthed this entire song. The whole thing is complete. And I'm not sure what causes that. It feels particularly pronounced in music for me, but I'm sure that people have felt this way in other creative disciplines as well. But I think there is something particular about music, and I think it's related to the subverbal way that music operates. It touches us in this really profound way. A given piece of music connects to us so deeply and so effortlessly connects to every piece of music we've ever heard in the past. I think that's a big reason that one piece of music can echo out across future generations and thousands of other pieces of music in that certain way that I really try to illustrate on this show whenever I can. We all have these melodies and harmonies coursing through our brains at every moment. Moment, they're under every conscious thought and conversation. They're sitting there behind every action we take. And it's only natural that when we begin to write music, it feels like we drop a line into that subconscious and just see what comes up on the other end. It feels different for everyone, I'm sure, but I think there's a through line as well, because I've heard a lot of musicians articulate something like this, something along these lines. And it's one of the most rewarding and beautiful things about writing music. And I will say that for me at least, that unconscious feeling of discovery only gets me so far it can be amazing i've written whole songs in like five minutes because i feel like they were already finished before i started writing them but even with a process that smooth i still wind up with just a really good raw idea and it takes a lot of conscious chipping and whittling to turn those raw ideas into a finished song that reflects not just an inspired creative process but a conscious controlled application of technique and method as well Well, sometimes. Sometimes you do a whole lot of that stuff, and then you wind up just deleting it all and going back to what you started with because the song was at its best at the very beginning. That's the thing about writing music, though, I suppose. It's always a little bit different. And when I write music, I do feel like I'm tapping into something bigger and older than myself, and it's an amazing feeling. Patrick writes with a couple of counting questions First he asks, what's going on with the time in the pre-chorus guitar part in Black Country New roads the place where he inserted the blade I can't tell if it's actually in a different time signature or just landing in a really weird sparse way but technically in the same time signature All right well let's listen and see what Patrick is talking about
1: Here We're stronger without. We
0: so you can hear the guitar over on the left, and we're in three-four here. One, two, three, one, two, three.
1: Playground, darling the rest of my body is yours.
0: And here comes the pre-chorus. Listen to that guitar over on the left. Alright, so what's going on with that guitar part? Well, the guitar part is not playing in a different time signature. The whole band is still in 3-4. What's going on is that the guitar player is just playing a figure that implies 2 over 3, or I guess 4 over 3. The guitar part is basically changing every 2 beats even though the chords are changing every 3 beats because we're in 3-4 time. I guess you could also feel this in 6-8. I don't want to get too bogged down in time signatures. The important thing is that this song has a three beat and the guitar part is moving every two beats which means they don't exactly line up except every third phrase in the guitar because that makes six beats the song is an f sharp and it does this descending chord progression here in the pre-chorus it goes from f sharp major to f sharp major seven to f sharp dominant seven to a b to the four chord that's a really classic chord progression it's in a whole bunch of songs so if you count it you get this and a one, two, three, 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 one. So that's very straightforward. Now if we play the guitar part totally on its own, it sounds pretty different. It sounds like this. And a one two one two one two one two one two one two. Now I'm counting that figure in two, I'm counting one, two, one, two, but that's just to show you how that figure works. In reality, the song is still in three and that figure is still in three, it's just superimposing a two feel over the basic three for a time. In music, there's something called a hemiola, which is a specific type of cross rhythm that superimposes three over two. I guess this is sort of a reverse hemiola because it's superimposing two over three, but the same principle applies. I've talked about hemiolas and cross rhythms in the past on the show, but I figure I might as well reiterate it since it's pretty common and it's a cool effect. So if we count that guitar part in three, which is a good thing to be able to do, you get something slightly different. It sounds like this. And a one, two, three, 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 one. So it's actually less confusing if you put the two parts together. So let's do that. Let's combine the basic chords, which are moving in three. And the guitar counterpart, which is moving in two. Here we go and see if you can hear and count both parts at the same time. So that's really just it. It's two over three, like this. Every one, 2 one, to make
1: two, one, two, for anyone
0: two, else two, in my two, head, one, two, I end up dreaming of you, and you come to me. Good morning. So yeah, just some rhythmic superimposition, also known as a hemiola, to add some tension and displacement to an otherwise simple guitar counter melody. Patrick has a second rhythmic question. He writes, can you take a crack at trying to explain Tell Me Something Good by Rufus? I think it goes from highly syncopated in the verse to not so syncopated in the chorus, but I cannot figure out how they get from one to the other. So let's take a listen, and I think I can explain what Patrick is hearing. But you might be thinking up front, Rufus? Who is Rufus? So Rufus is the band that recorded Tell Me Something Good, but they're known primarily for their lead singer, Shaka Khan. Also, fun fact, this song was written by Stevie Wonder. So this verse, this verse is extremely syncopated, which is to say it strongly emphasizes the upbeat. Specifically, the bass and the vocals are both entirely on upbeats, and that's unusual, especially for a bass line in this kind of funk music. Listen to the bass line. It's being doubled by a synth, and so it's in the middle, and it's also over on the right. So with that pulse is just stats, stats, uh, 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 that bass line is totally syncopated. It's the reason that the intro to this song is a little bit misleading because the wah-wah guitar is actually the thing that's giving you the downbeat over on the left, but your ear is going to be naturally drawn to the gravity of the bass. So the first time you heard this, you probably heard the beat turned around because you assumed that the bass was playing downbeats. You know, like, one, two, three,
1: four. Wait a minute.
0: So by the time the drums have come in, it's easier to hear where the actual downbeat is, but it's still kind of a tricky groove, since it's just odd to have the bass playing upbeats so consistently. It's like the funkiest polka ever. And it gives the verse this kind of poppy, jostling groove that just feels unsettled. It's going somewhere, but it hasn't arrived. Which makes for a strong contrast when they finally land on the chorus. Tell me something good. Yeah. <laughs> And it really is that simple. We go from a bass line that's almost entirely playing upbeats, just going down a scale. To in the chorus, a bass line that strongly emphasizes downbeats and grounds the whole chorus by matching the sung refrain. Tell me something good. Chaka sings that, but the bass plays it too.
1: Tell me something good. Yeah.
0: Tell me that you love me, yeah. It really helps that chorus land, and I think it's a reason that it's such an iconic and memorable song. And it's a great example of how effective it can be to draw strong rhythmic contrast between two sections of a song. Cole writes, A song I recently rediscovered has me scratching my head once again for the same reason it did years ago. I'm talking about the song Colors by Beck, which is an absolute gem of a tune, I may add. If you flip to the 1 minute 36 second mark, there's a woodwind type sound that goes on a bit of a riff. Reddit tells me it may be a synth with a pan flute sound, but I wanted to get your opinion. The song and album notes don't appear to list any unique instruments other than some keyboards and synths that might be making the sound. What do you think? So yeah, my take is that this is not an acoustic instrument. This is a synth or a sampler, some kind of an electronic instrument or a sampled sound, just because of the way that the pitch moves around and the overall sound of the instrument. It just doesn't really sound like a pan flute, like if they actually put a microphone on a pan flute and recorded one. So as a wind player, over time, you develop uh, just sense for when a wind instrument is being synthesized and played on a keyboard, and when it's actually being played with someone's wind, you just kind of learn what to listen for. For example, um, let me just pull up a pan flute sound on a synthesizer. This is Massive X synthesizer doing a kind of a similar sound. There's a slide toward the beginning of this phrase, a whole step slide, that just sounds like a portamento knob on a synthesizer and not like someone sliding the note on a flute. I don't actually have a pan flute, but I've played one and I play flute. You can get some slide-ish sounds by maybe doing something with your embouchure or some kind of unusual technique with your fingers. But that sort of smoothness on a whole step, that only really happens on something like a slide whistle in terms of acoustic instruments. And even then, it's still too smooth. It just doesn't sound natural. It sounds artificial. There's also a uniformity to the attack on the instrument. Every single note begins with the exact same breath attack sound, which is a dead giveaway for an electric instrument or a sampled woodwind because human players bring so much subtle complexity to their articulation and breath attacks when they're playing actual woodwinds it's probably the hardest thing to get right when it comes to recreating the sound of a wind instrument using a sampler or a synthesizer and it's always the first thing that i listen for when you begin to hear oh every single note that begins (laughs) begins the exact same way with the same onset and the same sound and the same dynamic especially when they're really quick one right after another like happens in the middle of this riff So yeah, this is a synthesizer, but it's a cool sound, that being said, and it works great for this song. And I think Beck is getting the exact sound that he wants here. Synth pan flute is its own whole stylistic arena, and that's where he wants to be. Blake writes in with a very similar question. He says this has puzzled him for over ten years. Blake writes, in your opinion, is the solo at the end of Daft Punk's Digital Love performed on a guitar or a synthesizer? Blake writes that he first heard this when he was a teenager, and like a lot of people, he initially assumed that it was performed on an electric guitar, since the sound and the tone, the style, definitely evoke that 80s guitar shredder sound like Eddie Van Halen. But as he was learning more musical production techniques, he began to really listen closely to it and started to have some questions about it. Like maybe it's not a guitar, maybe it's a synthesizer. So let's listen. This is the guitar solo from Daft Punk's Digital Love. So yet again, we have a solo that while it does occasionally sound like a guitar, there's just something keyboardy about it to my ear. Down here in these low notes, it's really the attacks again. It just sounds like keyboard synth attacks. That said, sometimes it really sounds like a guitar. Like that is perfect. So this sounds to me like someone going all out to recreate the sound of a shredding, finger-tapping Eddie Van Halen solo without actually getting a guitar player to play it, which is a lot of fun and was probably a pretty interesting process. I actually found an interview in Remix magazine with Daft Punk's Thomas Van Galter where they asked him about that solo and how the band got it to sound like something that they played rather than something that they sequenced for a synth. His answer, quote, That was a mix of elements. It was done with the help of technology, with the help of sequencers. We're interested in making things sound like something other than what they are. There are guitars that sound like synthesizers and there are synthesizers that sound like guitars. The other goal is to create spontaneity. Even though we're not that good, we played a lot of things ourselves. With the help of technology, you can manufacture skills that you don't have. That's one advantage of having a home studio, he says. Quote, It takes a lot of time to put together music that way, and that's not always a luxury that you may have in a regular studio. You might have one or two months to record an entire album in a regular studio, but in a home studio, you have more time to experiment. He concludes by saying, We also just like the idea of the solo. No one plays solos in their songs anymore. Remember, this was in 2001. And we wanted to include some of them on the album. I really like that answer, particularly when he talks about how there are synthesizers that sound like guitars and guitars that sound like synthesizers. And I do want to just note here that he didn't give a clear answer. He didn't say exactly how they did it. It sounds like maybe they used some guitar sounds, even though they clearly also use sequencing and synthesizers. So however you slice it, this wasn't a guitar solo in the way we think of one. And the keyboard aping a guitar solo, that sound, it's so well established at this point. It's been done so well and so creatively by so many keyboards. Keyboardists, that some guitarists make it a point to try to recreate that sound on their guitars. Keyboardists can do things that guitarists can't do. They can jump octaves, they can leap from note to note and articulate things in ways that guitarists generally can't just because the instruments are played differently and that can make it pretty thrilling when a guitarist manages to play something that sounds like it shouldn't be possible on an actual guitar. Tim Henson, the guitarist for that band Polyphia, that's kind of his whole thing or at least one of the most impressive things about his guitar playing it's that he routinely plays riffs and ideas that sound like they're being performed on something other than the guitar <laughs> so yeah it's fun to try to get one instrument to sound like another it's something i actually do a fair amount of while i'm making each episode of this show and it's always an enjoyable challenge Augustine writes, during the pandemic, Taylor Swift was all over the news with her project to re-record her music on her own after she couldn't buy the recording rights. At the time, a lot of people were excited about the precedent and hoped it would shape a better relationship between artists and recording labels. And by better, I mean less exploitative and abusive. It's been three years now, and while the project seems to have been successful for Taylor Swift, the new recordings are very popular and very good. Do you think it had the splash we were all hoping for? Well, I'll say up front that I am extremely far from a music industry expert. I'm no kind of analyst. I just don't really do that kind of analysis. So I'll keep my answer pretty short. Um, I can't really say what kind of an effect that it's had on the industry, both because it still hasn't really been that long and also because it's such an extreme outlier situation. I mean, Taylor Swift is so huge. These songs are so popular. It's kind of hard to say what that means. For everyone else, I do think it's cool anytime an artist reasserts control over their music, and I think that Taylor doing what she did has made more people aware of the often important difference between owning a song and owning a recording of that song, and more broadly, of how important it is to retain control and ownership over the art that you create if it's at all possible. Though I kind of get the sense that a lot of new artists understand that, anyways. So many new artists these days are discovered on TikTok, and if you're discovered on TikTok, that's because your song already went viral, which means it's already getting millions of plays on TikTok, which means it's already getting millions of plays on Spotify. So if you are in that situation and a record label comes to you and says, hey, sell us your song, we'll give you a bunch of money, you don't really have as much of an incentive to give them everything they ask for. You can kind of push back and say, well, I already made the recording. I already own all of this. It's already getting tons of play on Spotify, so I'm not going to give up total control over my music because I've seen what happens when people do that and I want to maintain control. Now, that's one possible upside of a world where basically the entire music industry runs on the black box algorithms of a single social media company. And I mean, it's not like that's great either. So it's not like we're living in some amazing new future. It's just one way that musicians have adapted to this new landscape. And if there's one thing that musicians and artists more broadly have demonstrated over the decades, it's that they are endlessly adaptable, whether or not it's fair that they should have to be that adaptable. So regardless of what will actually come of Taylor's re-record, project, my broad take is that anything that potentially puts more power in the hands of the people who actually make the music is a good thing, given how poorly those people, musicians, songwriters, composers have historically been treated by the industry that profits off of their work. So yeah, the music industry is a vast and tangled thing. It's been building and collapsing on itself for a hundred years. No one artist is going to change that overnight, even an artist as huge as Taylor Swift. But I gotta think that an artist flexing her muscle, leveraging her success and reasserting control over her back catalog can only be a good thing whether or not it leads to more other artists doing the same. Jamie writes, Can you please explain what changes at the end of Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer that makes it so much better than the first half of the song? My guess is that the beat gets looser, but I've never figured it out. Help, please. Okay, Jamie, let's compare the beginning of Sledgehammer to the end part of Sledgehammer, and then I think we can talk about some of the things that Peter Gabriel is doing to make that end really bring it home. So here's how the groove works in Sledgehammer at the beginning, during the opening verses of the song. So they're in E-flat major, and they're just stand on an E-flat for this verse, just kind of vamping and grooving on E-flat major. Then they go to C minor, then back up to E-flat. So that's how the verse works. It's mostly E flat major with a little bit of C minor. Then they get to the chorus where he says, I want to be your sledgehammer, and they do something pretty cool. They go to a C minor chord again, which they did before in the verse, C minor up to D flat major. And then it resolves up to F minor, which is kind of an interesting place to go. It's a step higher than they were on the verse. And the chorus is really kind of just in F minor or F minor seven. So that's the first part of the song that you're talking about, Jamie. It's actually a really interesting song. It sounds like it's just cooking along, doing what you'd expect, but then you pop the hood and look at what's going on, and it's all a bit stranger and more creative than you might have initially thought, which, of course, is typical of Peter Gabriel, and that's part of what makes him such a distinct and interesting songwriter. So now let's listen to the part that you're asking about, the second part of the song, when they bring it home at the end and the energy level really kicks up. Man, I love that synth shakuhachi so much. So, the most important thing about this part of the song is that it's a different chord progression than everything that's come before it. Well, almost everything that's come before it. there's a lot going on here to make this section feel groovier and more exciting than the verse. This is kind of the climax of the song, and it's all been building in this direction. For starters, the backup vocalists are just way more prominent in the arrangement here, and they sound amazing. So that's just gonna sound exciting, because hearing Peter Gabriel trade with killing backup vocals just is exciting. It sounds great. So the arrangement is more exciting, but the chord progression here also plays a big role. First of all, it transitions from that E-flat major sound that was going on in the verse to E-flat minor. So now we're in minor, it's got a darker, more driving energy right out of the gate. So it sits on an E-flat minor for a couple of bars, and then it drops to B major, the flat 6 major. That is another very dramatic chord progression. So we start on this dramatic E-flat minor, then we go to a dramatic B major, and then the third chord is the 4 chord, A-flat 7, also very dramatic. This is a pretty intense chord progression, and this whole outro just goes from E-flat to B major to A-flat 7 building and building and building. So yeah, the groove is different here. They're digging in a little bit more. The guitar and keys are doing that almost reggae skanking thing over on the right. But a lot of it comes down to this new chord progression, or is it a new chord progression? Because while you might associate this sound, these chords, with the end of the song, this chord progression is actually the very first thing that plays at the start of the recording. The whole groove is right there, that same chord progression, those same three dramatic chords, that same guitar groove over on the right. They just transition out of it pretty quickly and into the major keyed verse. So yet another cool thing about an incredibly cool song, the outro to Sledgehammer is just a fleshed out version of the intro, and however you think of it, it rocks. And yes, yes, I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again, I am definitely going to do a whole episode on Peter Gabriel at some point here. Our final question comes from Jamie, and it's about a subject that's near and dear to my heart, one that I always try to return to at least once on most of my Q&A episodes, namely learning a new instrument and developing good practice habits on that instrument. Jamie writes, 100% inspired by strong songs, I recently started taking clarinet lessons at a local music school. My progress is slow, but I'm loving every second of it. The lessons actually serve a double purpose for me. I'm learning the clarinet, and I'm finally learning how to read music. I had guitar lessons as a teen, but I never had any kind of discipline and I quickly plateaued. It's wild to approach music lessons with an adult brain and an adult attention span and a much clearer idea of what I want to get from learning the instrument. One thing that I'm finding is that I've become a little bit manic about practicing quote unquote effectively. I've been reading too much, watching too many YouTube videos about proper form, and as a result I forget to simply play the pieces and listen to myself and enjoy it. So I guess my questions for you are, what advice would you give for practicing effectively and how would you recommend improving my sight reading? So I definitely resonate with this question, and I think you've really articulated the good and the bad of learning a new musical instrument as an adult. As an adult, you often have spent a lot of time in your life learning how to manage your schedule, how to tackle a project and work methodically. You have more patience with yourself. You tend to take things a little bit more seriously. That can be great, since it can make you a more efficient, or to use Jamie's word, effective practicer. But that can also be a double-edged sword, because it's easy to become overly focused on that effectiveness And to lose sight of why you're playing music in the first place. YouTube tutorials can really contribute to this, I've found. For me, it's guitar YouTube, but it's the same difference, whatever instrument that you're playing. If you spend enough time watching the most popular instructional videos for a given instrument on YouTube, you start to get this like homogenized, generalized view of the instrument and the techniques required to master it that don't really have that much to do with your actual personal relationship with the instrument, which is the thing that you're actually developing. And that may sound like a fine distinction, but it's actually kind of a significant one, and one that you'll notice more and more over time. I think the reason for that is that YouTube videos are all aimed at a general audience, so they provide a kind of general advice. The whole thing starts to feel kind of generalized. When you zoom out and you look at the accumulated instructional knowledge on YouTube, learning a musical instrument looks about the same as learning to dismantle a car engine, or properly assemble an Ikea desk, or any of the other many things that YouTube shows people how To do. And all the people making these videos, especially the most popular ones, they're great musicians, they're really good teachers, and they're giving helpful instruction and advice. It's just the nature of that kind of generalized advice when you're speaking to potentially millions of people, it's gonna take on a kind of a generalized tone. So, in that context, it's easy to start just viewing your instrument as another widget to be mastered, another series of processes to be optimized and digested. And while that can be helpful, it's just one part of the actual experience of building an expressive relationship with a musical instrument. So that is one reason that I always suggest finding a private teacher and doing in-person one-on-one lessons. But actually, Jamie, it sounds like you're already doing that, which is fantastic. It's really cool that you found a music school to start with when you're learning the clarinet. So to your questions, both about refocusing and reimagining your musical practice and also for improving your sight reading, I'll suggest something slightly different. If you can, try to find someone else to play with. Another student, maybe at the school that you're attending someone who's maybe around your level they might play clarinet as well or maybe they play a different instrument just someone who seems cool who seems like they'd be down to get together and play duets work up some repertoire or just mess around in your instruments see what happens see how they work together and do that kind of on a regular basis every week maybe every other week The best way to improve your sight reading is to practice sight reading, and I find that the best way to practice sight reading is to do it in an actual ensemble setting. That can actually just mean two people. There's just something that happens in my brain when I'm actually playing a piece of sheet music for the first time with another person. When I'm doing that a lot, preferably with music that's pretty easy, that's maybe one degree of difficulty below anything that I'm working up and taking time to kind of go over and perfect, that's a great way to just clear out the synapses that my brain uses when it's sight reading new music. But more broadly, playing music with another person can just be a good way to move away from the obsessive optimization brain that can take over in the practice room when it's just us and the instrument and move more toward the silly, fun, joyful, collaborative process of actually just making and sharing music with another person, which is kind of what it's all about, or at least what a big part of music is all about. So yeah, that's my advice, my generalized advice to anyone out there who resonates at all with this question. I feel like there probably are more than a few of you, remember that musical practice can be a collaborative thing and see if you can find someone to play and practice with, not because you have to write new music or prepare for a big performance, but just to play together. Music is always better when you share it. The same thing goes for the process of learning music. Good luck with the clarinet, Jamie. I'm so happy to hear that the show has gotten you learning a new instrument. There is nothing like the relationship that a person can build with a musical instrument, and I hope that you continue to build your relationship with the clarinet for many, many years to come. And that'll do it for this latest mailbag episode. Thanks so much to everyone who wrote in with a question. And if I didn't get to your question, don't worry, I put them all in a huge master document, and you never know when I'll go through and dig up some older ones and answer them on the show. I have way more good questions than I'll probably ever have time to answer. But as always, if you have a musical question that you think might be good for the show, please do send it along to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. I read them all, even if I don't have a chance to read them all on the show, and I really love all the questions. that you all send. Thanks so much as always to everyone who's chipped in to make Strong Songs possible. As you know, I am entirely listener supported, which means I don't sell ads, and that also means that I don't make any money off of ads. So I'm very grateful to everyone who makes it possible for me not to need that money and to make this show without needing to worry about ads or sponsorships or anything else like that. So if you like Strong Songs, if you get something out of it, if you'd like to help me keep making it, go to patreon.com/strongsongs or you can find a link for one-time donations down in the show notes and again really thank you so much to everyone who supports this show as always you can find links for many more things down in the show notes as well the strong song store social media stuff playlists for the songs i've covered and there's even a play along for those of you who might want to try recording your own outro solo to possibly be featured on a future episode of the show that's it for now though take care everyone keep listening and i'll see you all in two weeks for more strong songs